Good morning. Let's, uh, let's begin class with prayer this morning. In our gracious Heavenly Father, we count it such a privilege to call it you our Father, and we ask that your spirit of love and truth will join us this morning, enlighten our minds, draw us closer together to fulfill your purposes in our lives. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So we're doing lesson number seven in the uh, quarterly Stewardship Motives of the Heart. And the uh, title is Honesty with God. And the memory verse is Luke 8.15 about the parable of the sower. And it says, But on that good ground they are they, which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. In this text, what are we to be honest about? With what are we to be honest about? There's, it's specific. Honest with the word, right? Having heard the word. We're honest with the word. And what does it mean to be honest with the word? Does that mean that we must have correct definitions of all the Bible metaphors and symbols and prophecies? Is that what it means? Does it mean that we must have correct doctrines? Is that what it means to be honest with the word? Or doesn't it simply mean that we genuinely seek to comprehend the true meaning and embrace it and apply it to our lives as we're capable of doing so. It's really a hard attitude toward the word, not whether we actually get the facts right on every point. But we're willing and desirous to get the facts right. It's really about an attitude rather than an argument over whether this is that or this is this. Isn't, isn't that what it's about? A hard attitude? Why is this important? Well, is there a connection between Truth and cleansing from sin. Jesus said you will know the... And the truth will set you free. What does truth free us from or of? Okay. Sure. Do, do, do the things we believe, actually your beliefs, do they have any bearing on your salvation? Yes. Okay. So what is salvation? What do you understand it to be? Healing. Oh, I like that, because that's actually what the root word means. Salvation means to heal. Uh, healing or restoration into God-likeness. Wouldn't you, would you agree with that? Can we do that on our own strength? No. So we receive healing, restoration, renewal. Um, the metaphors of Scripture, writing the law on the hearts and minds via the work of the Holy Spirit and Christ's achievements. But if you think this through, what is the method or gateway that God utilizes to bring this healing about in each of you individually? What is the gateway in your being for the truth to become effective in your life? The desire to know. The desire to know, she said. Okay, I absolutely have to have a desire. Uh, and I'm not trying to be tricky here, but I, I want to... We open the door. Be precise. Door to what? Okay, so the heart needs to be changed, and what's the avenue to get truth into your heart? What's the... The mind, okay? And particularly faculties of the mind are, are, are the collective faculties are your, are your reasoning conscience. Your reasoning conscience together form your judgment. You evaluate ideas, you evaluate concepts, you evaluate perspectives, you evaluate truths, you evaluate lies, and you are constantly making judgments. I believe that, I don't believe that. I accept that, I reject that. Your judgment is the avenue through which truth comes in or doesn't come in, it's accepted and partaken of, it's rejected and not partaken of. Everybody with me? That's your avenue. Okay? And then as you make judgments, as you make, draw conclusions, as you evaluate ideas and concepts, if you say, yeah, I believe that, and, and, and choose to apply it, this begins having a transforming effect upon you. You form new constructs, new ideas, new platforms. This fires new circuit patterns in your brain. 
Over the course of time, you will develop automated filter systems. I'll give you an example of an automated filter system everyone in this room has. We all speak English. English is not genetically pre-programmed. English was uploaded after birth. And it's an automated system that you never get up in the morning and go, today I'm going to think in English. It's always on. And when you look outside and you see an object with a trunk and leaves, you see a tree. It's filtered through English. You don't see a baum, German word for tree. English is a filter that filters reality for you. It's always on. Now, there are many systems of learning that we assimilate. Now, think how you learn English. Most of us in this room did not choose to be English speakers. We didn't have a choice. It was assimilated in the upbringing we had. Now, some people do choose to get a second or third language later. That, that, that can be done by choice. But usually the first language is not a choice the person makes. There are many constructs, ideas, belief systems people assimilate and hold to, become filters through which they approach the world before they even make it into adulthood where they start actually thinking about their perspectives. Now, this is important. This is why the Bible says, come let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white like snow. Though they're red like crimson, they'll be made like wool. Notice that God connects reasoning with cleansing from sin. Because we have all these ideas, these beliefs, these perspectives, these, uh, these assumed um, constructs that sometimes we don't question, our beliefs. And unless we reason through them with new evidence, enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, we can't change. It's reasoning through the truth, comparing it to what we currently hold value practice, and updating and changing that we are being transformed. And when we do that neurobiologically, you make new pathways in your brain, old pathways that were maybe unhealthy, maybe they were fear, maybe you approach in a certain time of your life, uh, 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 social settings, worrying about what people think of you, fearful about being rejected, in, insecure about uh, not being attractive enough, and this is the patterns of your thinking. But you've come to Jesus Christ, and you've accepted him, and, and you've surrendered your life to him, and, and you're not concerned with with what people think of you anymore. You're now concerned because you have a love in your heart you want to share with people and you go into that social situation to, to share the, the love that, that God has poured into your heart with them. I promise you, different brain patterns are firing. Completely different. And when you stop firing those fear circuits over time, those networks get pruned back. You get, you get changed. The brain responds and changes based on the thoughts that you think, the beliefs that you hold, and the God that you worship. The brain does not form our thoughts or beliefs, but the brain will rewire based on the beliefs and thoughts that you choose to fire. What makes you uniquely you is a combination of your physical self and your habituated methods and patterns of thinking, beliefs, and memories. That's what makes you uniquely you. The most important elements that make you uniquely you are your habituated patterns of thinking, your beliefs, and your memories. The physical self is the least important. That's why the Bible says when the Christ comes, you get a new physical self. This mortal puts on immortality. This corruption puts on incorruption. But your identity, your individuality, what makes you uniquely you, that doesn't get updated then. You're still you. 
And this is part of salvation process. Talking about salvation, healing. Taking individuals who are habituated in selfishness, in fear, in exploitation of others, who have beliefs that increase their fear, undermine their love, who have memories of either being mistreated that cause resentment and anger and desire for retaliation, or memories that cause shame and guilt and loss of value of self, feelings of worthlessness. And through the application of truth and love, changing the firing patterns replacing the false beliefs with true and who they are really in in Jesus Christ, reprocessing the memories and forms that are healthier to draw more truthful conclusions about themselves and the world around them. This is the healing, regenerating process. It can only happen for a person who deals honestly with the word. That you engage your mind to comprehend and know truth. In this way, we become renewed, healed, transformed, have the character of Christ. Now, This is not a work we can do simply in our own strength. Why? Because all truth originates where? He's the source of truth, so it has to come from him. The ability to understand and comprehend eternal truths, spiritual things are spiritual that come from the Holy Spirit, the restless desire in your heart for something better, for something more than this world has to offer, that's the Spirit working to draw into woo. You wouldn't have that desire for, for something better if it wasn't for the Spirit working. The pure motives of peace and love and kindness and forgiveness, these are gifts from Christ via the work of the Spirit in your heart. Yours is simply the freedom to see it, recognize it, choose it, identify with it. And the Holy Spirit empowers you to become it. And when that happens, we come into unity at one mint. As Jesus prayed in John 17, my prayer is not for them alone. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, as you are in me and I am in you. This, this message of unity. We come into one heart and one accord of love and truth. Yes? The characteristics that you were just, just describing could also be described metaphorically as the blood of Christ. Yes, the flesh and the blood. I am the Word, the Word made flesh. We must ingest the Word and partake of it, yes. And so often we think of the blood of Christ in religious thought as being some other thing, but actually it's the life of Christ which is changing us. That's right. With all this in mind now, we can look at more closely this question of honesty, what honesty is. First paragraph in Sabbath's lesson says the following. What is an honest heart, and how is it revealed? Contemporary culture often views honesty as some vague relativistic ethic. Most people are dishonest occasionally, but consider it acceptable as long as the infringement is not too great. Also, specific circumstances, it is claimed, would justify some dishonesty. Any thoughts about that? Do you think that they're saying that this is a reasonable way to approach life, or that they're indicting this as unreasonable and worldly and wrong? They don't really say, they're just... So as you read it, what do you think? That they're saying, this is reasonable, or this is like worldly and wrong, don't do it this way. Honesty is something extrinsic. So did you get the impression that what they said here, cultural circumstances is claimed, would justify some dishonesty? Seems like they're just defining it. So do you think that circumstance matter in whether you're honest or not? Or should you be honest 100% of all times? Look at Cory Ten Boom and she'll save the Jews. Okay, my very next thing. Remember the hiding place? Mm-hmm. Cory Ten Boom? Yes. The Nazis came in. They asked where the soldiers were hiding. Uh, excuse me, where they were hiding, Jews or not. And do you remember the answer? Under the table. 
Now, where were they? They were in a basement under a trap door, under a rug, under the table. <laughs> now. Yeah, but Rahab. Oh, oh well, wait, we're, we'll get to Rahab in a second. She's next. <laughs> was Corrie Tin Boone lying? No, it was her sister. Well, whoever said it. <laughs> were they lying? Corrie Tin Boone did lie about the Jews. So you have that contrast between the sister and, and Corey, and they both had a different opinion about whether you should lie. Right. Both of them were lying. Yes, they were. They were both lying. So, so because was the answer given by the sister when she said under the table actually intended to give accurate information into the answers and let them know where the Jews were in the house? Was it intended to do that? Or was it intended to mislead and deceive and obfuscate? It was the yes. child who said that. Yes. She and intended the, to be the truth. The child was intending to tell the truth. <laughs> You know, when I heard this as a kid, what I learned from the story was, it's okay to lie as long as you do it with the truth. (laughs) Seriously, that was the lesson. It's okay to lie as long as you give some factual truth that that, that the words you're saying are factually true. You can mislead and deceive people. And it's righteous and virtuous because it was held up in the story. It was a child. And the child told the truth. The child didn't lie. Therefore, and, but they misled them and they protected the Jews. So it's okay to tell things that are not really true as long as you think they're true or... Perhaps. That's the perception I had growing up. And that's the way it was actually presented by a lot of adults. You should never tell a falsehood. And if you tell the truth then God will work to make sure the good things happen. But it was clear to me that when they said, do you have any Nazis in this house? And they said, under the table. That they didn't mean under the table. They didn't mean that at all. I don't care if it was a child or not. The child knew the difference between in a basement and hiding under the table under the tablecloth. The child knew that difference. Now, we can play these, these games about this, but this is what we want to do. This is the level four thinking where we can tell lies while we tell truth. Rahab, you know the story of Rahab. Let, let's look at Rahab. Rahab's an adult. You're one of the spies hiding in, in her house. The people come to your house, kind of like the Nazis in the hiding place. It's very similar. And you're praying, Lord, do you pray? Dear Lord, please be with Rahab right now. She doesn't know you as well as we do. Uh, please be with her character and help her speak truthfully at this very moment. <laughs> Is that what you're praying when you're hiding under the flax in her house and they're coming to kill you? Interesting. What if a person in a situation like Corey Ten Boone or Rahab, either one, believes that lying is wrong? They should not lie. But they would rather lie and lose their eternal life than to assist in killing another human being. They would give their life eternally to protect these people, even if they think they're going to be lost for doing it. Are they out of harmony with God? No. If you value the Bible and the writers of Hebrews, where does Rahab end up? Hall of Faith and bloodline of Christ. Well, if you're not comfortable with this, this is what I read in the book Patriarchs and Prophets. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. False speaking in any matter. Every attempt to, to or purpose to deceive our neighbor is here included. Any intention to deceive is what constitutes falsehood. By a glance of the eye, a motion of the hand, an expression of the countenance, a falsehood may be told as effectually as by words. All intentional overstatement, every hint or insinuation 
calculated to convey an erroneous or exaggerated impression. Even the statement of facts in such a manner as to mislead is falsehood. This precept forbids every effort to injure our neighbor's reputation by misrepresentation or evil surmising by slander or talebearing. Even the intentional suppression of truth by which injury may result to another is a violation of the ninth commandment. What does the actual commandment say? Thou shalt not lie? No. Thou shalt not bear false witness against, against thy, neighbor. thy neighbor. Yes. Now we need to define who the neighbor is. So the author above, in harmony with the author above, in harmony with the, the, the commandment, if you read what I just wrote, this is what she said. The precept forbids every effort to injure our neighbor. That's the commandment. It doesn't actually say saying something false. Well, I'll give you some Bible examples. First, let's go to uh, let's go to Sunday's lesson, first paragraph. One of the most one, one thing most of us have in common is that we do not like dishonesty. We especially do not like it when we see it manifested in others. It's not easy, though, to see it in ourselves. And when we do, we tend to rationalize our actions to justify them, to downplay their significance. Oh, it's not that bad. It's only a small thing. Not really important. We might fool ourselves, e- we might fool ourselves even most of the time, but we never fool God. When you think of dishonesty now, dishonesty, is it merely someone who's not being factual truthful Or do you hear embedded in the concept of dishonesty, exploitation, seeking to harm, seeking to take advantage? Or promotion of self. Or or promotion of self. In other words, dishonesty, you don't hear simply as those facts were wrong. You see an intention to deceive in some way to hurt. That's, That's embedded in the idea. So... If you had someone throw you a surprise party, how many has ever had one? And you were actually led to believe you were going one place, but you ended up at a party for yourself. How many have ever had that happen? <laughs> there are about four of us in here, evidently. <laughs> Once the party was sprung and people are celebrating you, did you experience yourself as being sinned against? <laughs> did you experience yourself as wrong, exploited, or injured? Did you have anger, hostility, resentment? Did you need to forgive them for the wrong they did? Do you recognize you were lied to? but you weren't sinned against. Because there was no intention. Go back to the commandment. Go back to what I read. There was no intention to injure. In fact, you were not injured. You were not harmed. Doesn't anything other than the truth damage us? Satan is described as being the father of all lies. So keep that in mind, and let's go on with the, keep that question in mind and ask, would this be true in these cases? I think the thing that gets injured is trustworthiness. Keep that in mind as we go to the next cases. You really want to get some more evidence here. These are, uh, do God's prophets ever use methods of deceit, falsehood, made up stories, lying? Yes. In God's cause? Yes. Okay, so I'll just give you some examples. 1 Kings 20, 35 through 43. I'll read from the scripture. By the word of the Lord. So first off, where's this whole action coming? If you believe scripture. Okay, this is Lord's directions. One of the sons of the prophet said to his companion, strike me with your weapon. Then the prophet went and stood by the road waiting for the king. He disguised himself with his headband down over his eyes. Now, I want you to be, note, how was this prophet wounded? 
by a person he instructed to strike him. That's how he was wounded. Keep going with the story now. As the king passed by, the prophet called out to him, quote, your servant went into the thick of battle. And someone came to me with a captive and said, guard this man. If he is missing, it will be your life or his life. You must pay a talent of silver. While your servant was busy here and there, the man disappeared. That is what your sentence is, the king said. You have pronounced it upon yourself. Then the prophet quickly removed his headband from his eyes, and, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. He said to the king, this is what the Lord says. You have set free a man I determined should die. Therefore, it is your life for his life, your people for his people. Sullen and angry, the king of Israel went to the palace in Samaria. Was the prophet speaking truthfully? Or did he lie to him? Interesting. Well, let's go one more. This one's famous. You know it. This is uh, found in 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 7. He disguised himself to uh, make him seem like someone he wasn't. Yeah, it was several levels. One, the facts that he said were wrong. It was made up. It was a lie. He disguised himself so he wouldn't be recognized. And he came under false pretenses to seek the judgment of the king. Here's the next one. You'll know this one. 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 7. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he he had bought. He raised it and grew, and it grew up with him and his children. He shared it, it shared his food, drank, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Who sent Nathan to David? Was Nathan being truthful, both in the story that he told and his reason for coming? He was coming to get the king's judgment on a problem in his subjects. Was this a true, true pre- or was, this, was he lying? He made it up. But did he go to him? Did he say, I have a parable for you, king? Here's a parable for you. Did he do that? Or did he lead him to believe this was really happening when it wasn't? Is that honesty or deception? It's deception. It's deception. Hmm. Was this a... No, the Good Samaritan was a parable. Yeah, but was it... And there's a difference between telling parables... We know it's a parable now, but yeah. was it presented as a parable by Christ? Or did he merely... Actually, it wasn't just a parable. My understanding is the Good Samaritan was a true story that had happened. And he was retelling it. example is the rich man and Lazarus. That, that, that's a parable, yeah. And it's very clear in the story, the context, things couldn't be real. Um, you can't actually be in someone else's bosom. You don't have fingers and, to- and tongues and when you have disembodied spirits. So it's very self-evident in the story that that's not literal. But back to this one. The, two, the prophet and Nathan, were they in violation of the ninth commandment? No, because what's the commandment say? Don't bear false witness against thy neighbor. And what is the point of both of these prophetic interventions? These two kings were in self-deception. These two kings were actively in sin, lying to themselves, and these interventions were brought in order to bring truth to bear, to bring truth into the minds of people who were clouded with distortion. So these were restorative interventions. But if you think black and white, factually, you can't do this kind of stuff, then you can't actually help these kings. 
Level four and below thinking operate on the rules and cannot process on this level. They will argue that what I'm saying is subtle deception. For them, life is easier with black and white rules. They prefer to be able to simply speak the truth regardless of who it injures and feel safe that what I said was true. Hmm. What about, now we're going to get to controversial. We haven't got controversial yet. <laughs> now what about honesty to children? How about this situation? Church, one morning, Saturday or Sunday, whichever you go, 12-year-old child is asked to either do special music or read a scripture. They get up and they do a very poor job. Terrible, 70% of the notes are wrong. They misread the words, they stumble, they have to sound them out, they don't get it right. They actually make up words that are not in the text. But when they finish, the church applause, and as they walk off, all the adults say, good job, well done. <laughs> are they being honest with the child? Yes. We're not talking a five-year-old, we're talking a 12-year-old. They are being honest? Was it a job well done? Did they, did they do well? Are you commending the correct verbiage? Are you correct, commending the... The correct, courage to get up. the correct spirit in which they're doing this. Is there danger in labeling poor performance as good performance? Yes. Yeah, there is. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Do children of a certain age know whether they played or read well or not? Do they know? Yes, yeah. they do. And what happens if in the child's mind, in their own judgment, because the notes were off, because they stumbled and, and didn't even recognize some of the words... They conclude that they didn't do well, but all the adults they look up to say, good job, well done. We'll never ask you again. What, what happens in their mind? What are you doing to them, to their capacity for discernment, for understanding? Okay, no, you're right. Or trust in you. Yes. If this was their first effort, and it's understood as they're being encouraged Good job, well done. That was the first time you did that. Yes, you did lousy, but we're encouraging. Yes, that's well done. It wasn't well done. You need to rephrase it. What was well? You did good to get up there and overcome your fears. Right. Okay, that's fine. Perfectly fine. You stood up there even though you struggled. I'm proud of you for that. Well, I think you didn't run off. There's a lot of things you can say that are honest, but you don't tell them something that allows them to believe that you think they performed well. That's what's wrong with the kids nowadays, is they don't have to ever perform good. You're supposed to do the best you can do, but if you never try to better yourself. So what happens if in school everybody gets a participation award? Yeah. No grades. Everybody just gets... Are we being honest in society when we tell people that if you get upset about something, it's because someone else was not sensitive enough to your needs and they didn't create a safe space for you to flourish? No. <laughs> are we being honest in society when we do that no. now, i'll tell you what jesus said we should expect from others matthew 24 9 then they will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death and, the, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me jesus didn't tell us to go out and expect safe spaces you're triggering me i told you to prepare yourself before class <laughs> Did he? Did he tell you that you should expect people to be so sensitive to you that they'll always create a safe space for you? Do we, are we honest with people or do we deceive people when we tell them in a society that they have a right that other people should be so sensitive to them that they will conform the world around them to meet their needs? Where is the line 
between our responsibility to be kind, honest, caring people who don't seek to injure, who don't seek to offend or harm, and being held hostage in some way to someone else's interpretations of our actions. Where's that line? Do we help people mature or do we create false paradigms, false belief systems, false understandings of reality when we lead people to believe that their hurt feelings are not their own responsibility but the fault of an insensitive society? I'm telling you, we're building lies upon lies in our society. People are, and, and, and lies are destructive. These types of lies are injurious and harmful. They create false expectations. They lead to division and argument and hostility. They, they cheat people of the opportunity to mature and grow up. And they don't allow them to bring in what Jesus taught. What did Jesus teach? From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings forth good of the good started, and the evil man brings forth evil. So when somebody's treating you poorly instead of looking to self, oh, how could you treat me this way? You go, wow, man, this person's really struggling. They've got some issues. And, and I'm going to take Jesus' advice in Matthew 5. Uh, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be the son of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Notice, if you want to be like your Father in heaven, when people hurt your feelings, when people don't create that safe space, when people injure you, you have to have discernment and recognize, hey, they're struggling. They've got problems. They're insecure. They're hard-hearted. They're narcissistic. Whatever. They've got problems. And they don't know the, the grace, the love, the freedom that I know in Jesus Christ. Lord, help them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Because, and notice the examples that Jesus gave. If you want to be like your Father in heaven, the sun shines on the righteous and the wicked. The rain falls. What kind of laws are those? design law stuff you understand reality and that's what we're to do to understand reality God's kingdom and realize that when people mistreat us they're showing the sickness of their own heart and if we love them we pray that the spirit will bring something to bear in their life to heal them we choose to stay in governance of self, to stay in harmony with God, to not become retaliatory, offended, angry, to seek to use coercive measures to force people to conform to our ways. Those aren't God's ways. We present the truth in love. We leave people free. But when we go down the trail of my rights approach and demand others conform, we only fuel selfishness, division, and conflict. And I like what you read about truth in love. <laughs> because there's truth, telling, and then there's truth in love. So, I hope you know that I'm doing this in love today. My wife said we shouldn't criticize someone unless we would die for them. No, I really am. I, I see in my patients all the time, trust me, I am doing this in love. Yeah. I see this because I want my patients to get well. I want people to be healthy. You cannot be healthy and find wellness outside of God's design. You can't do it. There's no health and wellness there. And so, yes, truth spoken in love. And I think this is a, a great problem for our society today. That people externalize to other people responsibility for their own 
problems. I had a, I had a person in my office in the near past that um, had been arrested eight times, nine times, ten times, I can't remember the exact number, uh, burglary, theft, take, taking, this type of stuff. And he was very angry because he had a partner in crime that he broke into places with, and the partner in crime turned state's evidence and testified against him in court and got probation. He went to jail. And in his mind, he went to jail because of the partner's testimony. I said, did you actually break into the houses? Yes. So you didn't go to jail for breaking the houses? No, I went to jail because he testified against me. (laughs) It's not his fault. He didn't do it. You see, it, 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 he, didn't, he, he didn't actually get caught at the scene, you see. He was caught later, and then if it wasn't for the testimony, I wouldn't be in jail. It's, I didn't really, you know, I have no responsibility here. People think this way all the time. Or this, this thing about the safe space, same type of thinking. It's not my fault that I'm angry and hurt. It's not my fault that, that I can't take my exams today because Trump won the, the election. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, there's no sense of personal ownership. That's right. <clears throat> and more than that, like it, on any subject, I can barely read three or four blogs down because somebody is telling the truth and it's horrible and it's mean and they would probably never say these things right to your face, but because they're in the quietness of their home, you know, they're, they're spewing out these, what they consider truth and demeaning and degrading people by doing it. Right. So this would then fall... Truth-telling designed to injure or hurt is a violation of the Ninth Commandment. Truth-telling designed to injure and hurt is a violation of the Ninth Commandment. What about falsehood told in love? Yeah, that's what we already went through with the examples of the prophets. That's what that was. Just one thought on that. I totally agree with you where you're going with that. But I think if it weren't left unsaid, there, there are those that might, dis, you know, they may be deceptive in their own heart. You know, I had an affair. So because of that affair, um, and I don't want to hurt my wife. So because I don't want to hurt my wife, I'm not going to bear a false witness. So I'm going to lie about the affair kind of thing. You know, that concept, the, the core message of the truth-telling, should I mean, that should be the core. That should be the standard. I think there are times where, like you brought up with the uh, the prophets and such, where, um, you know, there was, a, there was a reason for deception. And it, no, I, I want to intervene what you said, because you brought up an example I think we should unpack briefly. Okay. And that's the person who's had an affair. And whether they should tell the spouse or not tell the spouse. This comes up all the time, and I see so much damage by level four and below thinking counselors who tell them you have to go home and be honest. It really is contextual. I've seen people who, in the first year of their marriage, they had an affair. They were repentant. They were sorrowful. They repented before God. And they have been faithful in their marriage for 35 years. No more, no more wrongdoing. But, but... Some counselor they went to when that came out said to them, did you ever tell your spouse? Well, you know, you have to confess that to them. And so 35 years, 36 years later, they go and tell the spouse that 36 years ago I hadn't, I cheated on you once. What do you think? Do you think that's an act of love? No. No. What happens is it puts the spouse now in a position where they have huge sense of betrayal. They have anger. They have distrust. Now they have, they've been wronged. They have to now work through whether I'm going to forgive you or not. And if I don't forgive you, I'm going to get resentful. I'm going to get angry. I'm going to get hurt. Uh, I might get bitter. I might harden my heart now. I've seen this happen over and over again. What needs to be confessed is not the historical act. What needs to be confessed is the condition of the heart today. So if the person is still a cheat, and they're the ones who won't do it, but they're the ones who go, I need to let you know, in my heart, uh, you can't trust me because I cheat. I'm still cheating. I'm actively cheating. And you can't trust me. That's what needs to be confessed. 
So in the example where you went all the way to the end, that portion of it, you can literally still convince yourself of that fact that, you know, I don't want to hurt my wife even now. But, but yet you're hurting not only her, but yourself. So you can get caught in a lie by thinking that I can tell this lie, but on the other hand, it, you really end up hurting yourself. So I'm just thinking that, the um, kind of like what Russell was thinking, the, the, the core of our belief should be honesty. There are times where dishonesty could protect somebody, and I think those examples were perfect. All right, I didn't have it in my notes, but I'll have to bring it up. <laughs> just so I can have 100% agreement in here, because I don't think we do it yet. <laughs> you know I'm a psychiatrist. A patient comes to see me, they have ethical expectations and rights to confidentiality and legal expectations and rights to confidentiality. And let's say a local pastor comes to see me because he's got a porn addiction problem and he needs some help with that. And I've only met him in my office. I don't know him. He's a pastor of some church I don't go to. But I happen to be out on the golf course or someplace else and I meet somebody and say, hey, I go to this church. You know my pastor so-and-so? Well, I could tell you, but ethics preclude me from, from answering that question. <laughs> Do I tell the truth? Yeah, yes, he's coming to see me for a porn problem. Or he's just coming to see me. <laughs> Do I lie? No, I don't know him. What is the ethical, moral, and not, not just legal, human legal, but the righteous action to take in that setting? I do know him, but the only place I know him is in this confidential setting where he's seeking help. And somebody asked me randomly, it's happened to me on occasion. Trust me, it's happened. Do I? Would you want me to disclose if you were the patient? No. The next question is, how do you know him? And you, and you can't do this subtle little tap dance. Well, yeah. You can't say, I, I, don't, I don't think I've ever met you socially. And you, as soon as you put socially, I'm a psychiatrist, yeah. thinking smart people, uh, if they're a doctor or anybody, they're going to go, oh, he's seeing you as a patient. And I've just disclosed. That's unethical. <laughs> Seriously, if you asked me and I said, I haven't met him socially, you would know they're coming to see me as a patient. <laughs> and that's a disclosure. And even if you turn it back on, well, why would you ask that? That still has a bit of an indicative. Uh... And I do harm. Even if they're coming to see me, something completely innocuous. Let's say the president of the United States came to see me because he has an attention deficit problem, which is a pretty benign problem, really. You put him on meds and it's really pretty much resolved. Pretty benign problem. But let's say he was seeing me for that. And I just, and, and somehow it got out, he's seeing a psychiatrist. You have no idea why. Would people be concerned about that? Would it hurt his reputation? Would it harm the person? So, see, especially I'm curious what he said. I know what I said. I say no. I don't know him. Huh. I say no. I say, I'll either joke and say, if I tell you, i got to kill you. Or I'll say, you know I can't share that, just like I wouldn't share whether you were a patient. But see, you just disclosed you're seeing them. Because, because you would not, you do, no, you, yes, you have, because here's why. Here's why. If I come up to you and ask you about somebody that you have met, and you met them in a potluck, you met them at church, yet they're not your patient, and I say, do you know pastor so-and-so? You wouldn't go to that circumstance well, I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you. You would actually start talking. Yeah, I met him. We had dinner at his house after potluck. And you would start talking about your experience. When you evade like that, everybody knows you're seeing him as a patient. No, because you don't understand. I don't remember all my patients. And so the reality is, is I don't know. I really don't know. So the answer is not no. They don't know that. But when you say, I, I could tell you I'd kill you, or it's an evasive answer. I'm going to go to their seeing me as a patient. Yeah, I'm going to lead, lead to a conclusion that's not... But then it would be actually better just to say, I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know that I know them. I can't remember. That's okay. I don't know if I know them. That's, a, that's an okay answer. But, but when you do know, I do know them. I really do. When I say I don't know, that's still a lie, isn't it? 
I can't remember. So we're not talking the context you really don't remember. We're talking the context you do remember. I'll count counter privately. Okay. <laughs> and so my point being is truth and love. It would not be an act of love to disclose that information to people on my part. It would not. And you wouldn't want me to do it, I promise, if it was you, the patient. You would want me to keep your confidence. So let's go on. The lesson wants us to actually talk about tithe today. <laughs> but, but, but we first have to talk about honesty, right? It says, to whom is the tithe to be paid and what's its purpose? And I've got a question. Is the tithe to be paid to the institutional churches or is it to be used wherever God impresses you to place it for the spreading of the gospel? Well, here's one person's perspective. You can agree or disagree. There's two quotes, two paragraphs, or a couple paragraphs. One's the Daughters of God 106. The other is the second manuscript release, page 99. Here's the first one. There are ministers' wives who have devoted earnest whole works, workers uh, to giving Bible studies and reading and so forth. Um, I tell them, go forward, and all, all such decisions will be revived because they aren't being compensated. Their husbands are being compensated, but the wives are not being compensated. When any such decision is made, I will say in the name of the Lord, I protest. I will feel it my duty to create a fund from my tithe money to pay these women who are accomplishing just and essential work as the ministers are doing. And this tithe I will reserve for the work in the same line as that of the ministers hunting for souls, fishing for souls. And then the next one, second manuscript release. It has been presented to me for years. Who do you think that was from the general conference president was presenting this to or what do you think? It was presented to me for years that my tithe was to be appropriated by myself to aid the white and colored ministers who were neglected and did not receive sufficient income to properly support their families. I have myself appropriated my tithe to the most needy cases brought to my attention. I have been instructed to do this, and as the money is not withheld and as the money is not withheld from the Lord's treasury, it is not a matter that should be commented upon. Pause. The money was not going to the organized church, yet it was not withheld from the Lord's treasury. Note that. Because there's some have you believe that if you don't give it to the organized church, it's not going to the Lord's treasury. This person had a different view. Some cases have been kept before me for years, and I have supplied their needs from the tithe, and God has instructed me to do. And if any person shall say to me, Sister White, oh, that's who this person wrote this, in case you didn't know, um, will you appropriate my tithe where you know it is most needed, I shall say, yes, I will, and I have done so. Amen. Yes. So what was the purpose or the direction of the tithe? It wasn't just do-gooders. It was for the support of the priesthood. The spreading of the gospel. Spreading of the gospel. The priesthood. The spreading of the gospel. You're talking about the old time. The, the spreading of the gospel. Yes. It's, it's, yes. Well, one, of, one of them is for the education of the family itself, at least in the Old Testament, because they used on the third year the tithe to take them over to wherever the education was happening. Which was a part of spreading of the gospel. Right. <laughs> yes. It was a spreading of the gospel, saving message. That's the purpose of the tithe. Not for building funds, not for church schools, primarily. Not for hospitals. Primary for the spreading of the gospel, the gospel message. The, the, the truth about God. And we're going to come to that. Let me, let me hit something really quick because I think people will find this helpful. And that is about trust or faith, which is in um, Monday's lesson, Life of Faith. 
in Monday's lesson. So what is trust or faith? And as I looked at this, and I know we're running out of time, so I want to get to this question of the gospel and the tithe. Um, I kind of propose there are four elements necessary to experience healthy trust or healthy faith. And these are the four elements. See, see what you think. One, the other person genuinely loves you more than self and would sacrifice self for you. Two, the other person has demonstrated mature self-governance, the ability to be reliable and consistent in carrying out what they have said they will do. Three, the other person possesses genuine wisdom or understanding of how reality actually works and operates in harmony with God's design laws. And then four, and by the way, the first three together summarily comprise what I call trustworthiness. You have to have those elements to be trustworthy. And the fourth one, to have actual healthy trust or faith, besides those first three, the fourth one, you come into actual knowledge of the person for yourself and experience one, two, and three for yourself. You've been in situations in which you have experienced the other person coming through for you. You actually have to have the experience with them. They can't just possess these things and you have no experience. You have to experience the person with these things in order for genuine faith or trust. Now, there's problems if you don't have all three of those first elements. A person may love you more than self. They may sacrifice self for you, but they're only five or ten years of age. They don't have the maturity to actually carry out life's responsibilities without fail. And so you can't really trust them to take your check to the bank or various things. You can't trust them. Not because they intend wrong, but they're not mature enough yet. They can be too easily duped. Or a person who loves you more than self and who does have self-governance, but they believe in an imperial God who imposes rules and rigidly applies those rules. Can you actually trust someone like that to do the right thing in every circumstance? Or might their rule doing cause them to harm? So they have to have more than just love for you and mature governance of self. They also have to have wisdom in how God runs and does things. I want to jump to, to Wednesday's lesson because this is going to come to the question of the tithe and the gospel. And uh, Wednesday's lesson, um, we do not make tithe holy. God does so by designation. He, he has that right. As stewards, we return to him what is his. Tithe is dedicated to God for a special task. Holding it for other designations is dishonest. The practice of returning a holy tithe is never to be broken. So the, the tithe is designated. What's it designated for? And I don't have the quotes, but I can give them if anybody doubts me. They're designated for the gospel message. That's what the tithe is designated for, to spreading the gospel. So Revelation 14 says that an angel lightens the world with the everlasting or eternal gospel. So what is the message that the tithe money is supposed to be promoting? Well, listen to this description. See what you think here. I find this very fascinating. This is first manuscript release, page 44. The message proclaimed by the angel flying in the midst of heaven is the everlasting gospel, the same gospel that was declared in Eden when God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise the he uh, thy head and you shall um, bruise his heel. Here is the first promise of a savior that would stand on the field of battle to contest the power of Satan and prevail against him. Christ came to our world to represent the character of God as it is represented in his holy law, for his law is a transcript of his character. Christ was both the law and the gospel. The angel that proclaimed the everlasting gospel proclaims the law of God, for the gospel of salvation brings man to obedience of the law, whereby their characters are formed after the divine similitude. Now, that's kind of, kind of wordy in my view, but did you hear what's actually being said? Is she saying rules and legislation? 
that rules and legislation reveal the divine character, or she's saying God the creator, as it says in Romans chapter 1, his divine nature is seen in what he has made to the man out of excuse, that his laws are the laws upon which reality are built. And when you understand those divine laws, you see his character in operation, the principles of love built into everything and so forth. What is she saying? And that you can only, as you come back into harmony with him and his laws, his designs, are you healed and restored into the similitude. In other words, if you have an end-time message that doesn't include the, the design law and you have an imperial law, you're not taking the gospel to the world. If you want more, let's go to the next paragraph. Satan has been persevering and untiring in his efforts to prosecute the work he began in heaven to change the law of God. By the way, was there a Sabbath in heaven when he started this war? So, Seventh-day Adventists, get your mind around it. His war that he began in heaven when he wanted to change God's law was not changing the day of the, the day of the of, of the day of worship. That was not his law. That was not the attack. That let's get us to worship on a different day. If you think that the change in the law was a change of worship day, you've been misled. Amen. Does that mean the day hasn't been changed? No, the day has been changed. But that isn't the core attack. That's the evidence of the attack. That's the fruit of the attack. That's the consequence of the attack. What's the attack? God's law functions like human law. It's just a system of rules that are subject to change, and therefore you can change them. We don't change the law of gravity. We don't vote to change the laws of respiration, the laws of health. We can't. God's laws are unchangeable. Keep going. He has succeeded in making the world believe the theory he presented in heaven before the fall, that the law of God was faulty and needed revising. What kind of law? Can you revise the design laws and still have life work? I think I read you the stats. If you were to change the law of gravity by one part in 10 to the 60th power, that's a one part with a, a one and 60 zeros behind it. That's a big number. Can't even say it. But if gravity changed that little, life as we know it wouldn't exist. You can't change the design laws and have us still be alive. It's not possible. Not what and jot or tittle of the law can change. And life still operate. These are God's designs. But Satan has got everybody to believe that, that they're open to revision. And the church has got people to believe it's open to revision. We can change the name of worship. We can change the second commandment. We can remove the graven images. We can, we can split the tenth. We can, we can change the law. It's open to revision. Why? Because it doesn't function like design law. It's just a list of rules. It's changeable. A large, a large part of the professed Christian... But let me get the other sentence before... He has succeeded in making the world believe the theory he presented in heaven before his fall that the law of God was faulty and needed revising. A large part of the professed Christian church, by their attitude, if not their words, show that they have accepted the same error. But if not one jot or tittle of God's law can be changed, Satan, if, if not one, yeah, Satan has gained on earth what he could not gain in heaven. He has prepared his delusive snare, hoping to take captive the church and the world. But not all will be taken captive in his snare. A line of distinction is to be drawn between the children of obedience and the children of disobedience, the loyal and the, and the true and the disloyal and the untrue. Those who operate in harmony with the principles of God, the design protocols of God, and those who are rule keepers. Do you think you get different? I'm going to just tell you. You get different character depending on which God construct you worship. And your God construct is determined by which law you understand he governs by. 
If you believe he runs his universe like humans do, make up rules that require imposed punishments, then the problem with breaking the law is the sovereign must hold you accountable and punish. Then the plan of salvation is to do something to the sovereign to pay the penalty so he won't punish you. If you understand design law, then you understand sin is deviating from design and we are in a terminal condition, dead in trespass and sin. And God, through Christ, has been using all his agencies and all his resources to provide remedy to put us back in harmony with the law to fix what's broken. Wow, I love and adore you. Wow, I'm scared and need protection of you. Your character goes two different ways. One inspires love, one inspires fear. And the consequences are not the same. And so back to the tithes in the gospel. What happens if you discover you're paying tithe to an institution who's promoting the imperial Roman God? Are you promoting the gospel? You're not. So we should try to reform. And that goes into Thursday's lesson. We're talking about revival and reformation. We should work with the organization to try to bring reformation, to try to bring the true gospel message, to try to bring the three angels so that our resources and funds can promote the good message. Do you believe that the church needs reformation? Amen. Or revival? They, they give a definition in the lesson. Revival and reformation are two different things. Revival signifies a renewal of spiritual life, a quickening of the powers of the mind and heart, a resurrection from the spiritual death. Reformation signifies a reorganization, a change in the ideas and theories, habits and practices. What do we need? Reformation. reformation. <laughs> Terrible reformation. So let me ask you this. The Reformation started 500 years ago by Luther and others. What do you think is left lacking? What's the, what, what, what do we need to accomplish to complete the Reformation that was started? What's, what's left? Jesus has to come. Jesus has to come, of course, but what's, what's left to complete the Reformation to prepare for Jesus to come? Because when he comes, we shall see him face to face, for we shall be like him. Uh, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as witness of all nations. Then the end will come. Are we taking the gospel of the kingdom of love to the world, or are we taking a gospel of an imperial Roman dictator to the world? What is the church really taking to the world? The dictator. Seriously, this is the wine of Babylon that all the nations get drunk on. And you will, if you look for it, imperialism, God construct, all the world accepts. And they either become totalitarian, abusive, or they throw off the idea and say, I wouldn't believe in a God like that. And so they react to that wine and they reject it and they become godless and agnostic. But they're still reacting to that theory. That's the theory that predominates in the world. Anybody doubt me on that? They'll fight you that. They absolutely will fight you. And this is the message we've been blessed with. And there's a people who are supposed to be at the end time, an angel, both in 14 and 18, okay, that is to lighten the world with a different perspective. And we are to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in this. In other words, creator, designer worship, whose laws actually reveal his character. That's what we're going to be taking to the world. Are we doing it? Have I silenced you all today? <laughs> we're doing it in class. Yeah, yes. So um, in closing then, um, the paragraph says revival, the last paragraph or one of the paragraphs in Thursday's lesson says revival and reformation demand a commitment and tithing is part of that commitment. If we hold back from God what he asks of us, we cannot expect him to respond to what we ask of him. Hmm, interesting. How, how might that be heard? 
Could that be heard to suggest deal-making with God? Level two. Could it be heard that way? I'm not saying that's what they intended, but the way it's written, could it be heard? If we hold back from God, we cannot expect him to respond to what we ask of him. This is very poorly worded. It leads to this idea of deal-making, the quid pro quo. I pay my tithe, and God will then do what I ask. Put my money in the slot machine, I get out, or the vending machine, not slot machine, vending machine, I get out what I, what I want. No. First off, is tithe paying a prerequisite to praying to God? And they would suggest it is. You can't expect God to answer your prayers if you're not paying tithe. Don't even try. No, that's very pagan. Pagan is like, you've got to pay and do all this before God will hear you. No, the tithe, we, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God, God meets us where there are many people who have to come to Christ, know him and love him before they even know about paying tithe. They don't need to pay tithe before they can pray to him. And if they're in distress, they call out to him. God will meet them and lead them. Is God unwilling to listen to those who don't pay tithe? Oh, they did. Oh, wait. Hey, hey, there's a prayer coming up over here, Gabriel. Can you check to see if a teen has got her tithe update? I'm not sure I'm going to listen to that unless she's paid up. Check the balance sheet. Check the balance sheet. Oh, she, no, she, she, she's a week late. Uh, she's got a, she got a paycheck six days ago and hadn't paid her tithe yet. Okay, well, we'll put that prayer on hold till I get my check. Do we really think God behaves this way? Is God unwilling to respond? Well, I heard it, but you know what? And I've got this blessing, but they can't have the blessing until they pay. You know, their rent's overdue. The tithe pays overdue, and I, I can't dis- dispense the blessing until I get my tithe. And the late fee. And the late, this is what the, no, but, but I want to show you there's a truth here. There is a truth here. But I want, I want to, but it's not this truth. This is the distortion that it makes it about God. It's never this way. Here's the truth. There's a natural law. Yes. If you don't pay tithe under a mindset and of understanding and belief that it's your responsibility to pay tithe, that's an important one. Many people don't know about it. But if you know and, and you believe it's your obligation and requirement that it's not your money, you're in a partnership with God, and that's God's money anyway. It's not even your money. That's your belief, and you don't pay your tithe. Could you then experience fear and guilt, insecurity and shame? Could your conscience burden you? And if you're in a state like that, is your heart and mind as receptive to hear God, to understand his interventions, to respond to his leadings, or are you hardening your heart, making yourself less sensitive, and therefore believe that your prayers are not being answered when God is really answering, but you can't hear and see anymore? You don't recognize the blessing. There you go. Yes. Okay, we'll close with Wendell. I think there's three stages here. You're describing a knowledge which you're, you're ignoring or rejecting, and you're becoming more hardened. In the middle is those who do not know. Right. Yep, I gave, I gave a little nod to them. <laughs> truly, there is a, a beneficial to knowing and loving God and giving our tithe and being committed to Him and responding to his desires and yes. the universe. And that was in Tuesday's lesson, and we skipped it. So, so, so there's <laughs> Thank you. three sections here. Yes, and that was, uh, are there spiritual blessings to actually participating in paying tithe? Yes, and there's a whole list of blessings that you don't receive if you aren't participating, and that's true too, and we didn't have time to go into it. So thank you for clarifying that point. It's a brilliant point to clarify. And so we miss out on those right. because of our lack of participation. In that, not because God is jealously withholding or angrily obstructing. Right. Yeah, it's like uh, you go to the gym and all the equipment's there, but you won't use it. You don't get any benefit from it. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so amazed at your beauty, your character, that your principles of love. 
Lord, we ask that your spirit of love and truth will come into our hearts and minds. Help us process through this, think it through, come to our own conclusions about these things, and ultimately reveal you and your methods and principles more effectively so the world can be lighted with this true gospel message and that we can see you soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Yeah.